Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Good morning, everyone. Uh, folks, I'd like to begin by acknowledging uh, the traditional owners on whose ancestral lands uh, this conference takes place. Uh, my warm greetings to the Wurundjeri peoples. Uh, thank you also to Rhonda Galbally for inviting me to speak um, at this important conference today. Now, the theme of this conference, uh, Communities in Control, is a theme of enormous importance and significance to me. It is these things because we've witnessed in this country a duplicitous approach by governments to community planning and development. And this is true for Indigenous communities Australia-wide, but particularly in recent times in the Northern Territory, all of whom have experienced the heavy-handedness of government intervention. Now today I hope to take you on a journey, a journey on what, uh, uh, through what uh, government means, uh, governance, sorry, means and how Indigenous communities view governance. I also want to take a look at contrasting approaches by the Australian Government to international development on the one hand and the Northern Territory intervention on the other. And similarly, the Northern Territory Government's approach to local government reforms I hope will also provide some contrast between communities in, in control of their own destiny and government's heavy-handedness in imposing its will uh, without regard for a community's social development. Now, I've said on previous occasions, it's the responsibilities of government to ensure informed engagement and participation of Indigenous peoples uh, when it comes to decisions that affect their lives. And I see, sadly, very little evidence that the principles of engagement with marginalised communities are embedded in consultative processes and policy decisions concerning Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in this country. This doesn't just concern me, it, it saddens me somewhat. Having taken you on this journey, I then hope to conclude with some observations about governance and how government can work with local communities, uh, especially Indigenous communities. 
So allow me to turn first to governance and good governance. Governance, in the end, is about power. It's about relationships and processes of representation, decision-making and accountability. It's about who decides and who has the authority to decide. It's about how decision-makers gain legitimacy. Who has the influence? And it's about how that influence is exercised. How decisions are made and how decision-makers are held accountable to the stakeholders both within the community and to external stakeholders, such as government agencies and corporate uh, partners. Now, ladies and gentlemen, governance is not culturally neutral. It's shaped by worldview, the norms, the concepts and values of the local community, organisation or entity. And determining what constitutes good governance leads to debates about values, cultural norms and desired social, economic and cultural development objectives and outcomes. The characteristics of good government include participation, the rule of law, transparency, responsiveness, consensus orientation, equity, effectiveness and efficiency, accountability and very importantly strategic vision. Stephen Cornell, the director of the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development at Harvard University defines governance in an indigenous nation or community context as, and I quote, the principles and mechanisms by which the will of that community is translated into sustained organised action, end quote. But folks, ultimately good governance is about protecting and promoting the public interest. And the public interest is more than just the sum of a total of individual interest. People who live together must cooperate to achieve harmony and to sustain their well-being. Here in Australia, I've been involved in a major research project on Indigenous community governance, uh, which concluded late last year. This research project was a partnership between the Australian National University and Reconciliation Australia, 
uh, with funding from the Australian Research Council. And the research project produced some very interesting results. For example, the research has identified a number of design principles that are used by Indigenous communities and that appear to be broadly relevant and effective across different types of rural, remote and urban communities and in different local conditions and governance environments. And I want to quote just five of, of the Indigenous governance design principles that have emerged from this, first, uh, from this um, research. Firstly, networking governance so that arrangements encompass layers of groups, organisations and communities, each with its own rules, authority and responsibilities. Secondly, locating decision-making responsibility at the closest possible point of connection, at the closest possible point of connection to the people affected, and making decisions at the higher levels uh, when more, ex when more exclusive, inclusive matters sorry, uh, require such consideration. Now this is the subsidiarity principle in practice. Thirdly, emphasising relatively egalitarian relationships between organisations, groups and kinship units, with each component of the network having relative autonomy while also having nodes of concentrated power and authority within networks. Fourthly, working out governance by first working out relationships and shared connections, thereby giving effect to the interconnectedness needed for network governance. And finally, working through the governance histories of the constituent social and organisational layers in order to reinforce or develop a new, connection, a new um, connections. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this research has provided Indigenous people and communities and governments with a more authoritative and definitive basis on which to inform their governance building initiatives and the development of government policies and programs. Terrific. But <laughs> it's a pity that governments are not taking this res these research findings into consideration. And I'll return to this a bit later. But let me now look at <coughs> Australia's approach to international aid and development in contrast. Now, Australia's international aid program assists developing countries to reduce poverty and achieve sustainable development in line with Australia's national interest. And Australia has signed undertakings that its aid programs will align with the Paris Declaration on Aid Effectiveness.
Now, no doubt many of you are familiar with the Paris Declaration on Aid Effectiveness. It was developed at a forum convened by the OECD in Paris in February to March 2005. And it looks at the responsibility of developed and developing countries for delivering and managing aid in terms of five principles. Um, I won't go through the entire declaration, it's quite detailed, it runs over eight pages, but the five principles are one, ownership, two, alignment, three, harmonisation, four, managing for results and five, mutual accountability. Now each of these principles involves commitments from parties, the donor and the developing country. And in all cases they are reciprocal in nature. For example, under principle one, uh, ownership, developing countries commit to exercising effective leadership over their development policies and setting uh, their own strategies for poverty reduction, improving their institutions and tackling corruption. Donors commit to respecting partner country leadership and helping um, to build their capacity to exercise it. Under the principle of alignment, developing countries and donors jointly commit to working together to establish mutually agreed frameworks that provide reliable assessments of performance, uh, transparency and accountability of country systems. Now, what is clear from reading the Paris Declaration is that it aspires to empower developing countries and communities through partnering with donors. It codifies how donors and recipients will interact such that the receiving community is not disempowered. Let me say that again and hope someone from the government's listening. <laughs> it codifies how donors and recipients will interact such that the receiving community is not disempowered. Now the Paris Declaration has now been in force for about, in place for about five years and the OECD has been evaluating its implementation. Now Australia was one of the, one of the, um, was, among, uh, was among some of the many countries to be included in the first phase of evaluation. <clears throat> now I know some people mightn't agree with this but in general Australia well, rates well in terms of its high level commitment to the principles of the Paris Declaration. For example, the Australian Government through AusAid has developed a number of country and regional strategies jointly with developing countries with reference to the Paris Declaration uh, principles. Let's get some water, sorry. I'm in the swine flu capital of the world, I think, at the moment. <coughs> I hope I'm not getting it. 
Um, secondly, the, the um, Australian government has deployed a range of public servants uh, to work inside governments of the Solomons Islands and Papua New Guinea to assist uh, with building their governance capacity um, and strengthening uh, government systems. And finally, they've established the Office of Development Effectiveness within AusAid to undertake monitoring and evaluation of Australia's programs and initiatives and to report on the progress against the United Nations Millennium Development Goals. Now, the OECD concludes, and again, some might not agree with this, that Australia has made a reasonable start with implementing the Paris Declaration principles in its foreign aid program, especially through increased emphasis on partnerships. Now, folks, partnership and participation has become the new catchwords in international development to describe the underlying ethos. Under the Paris declarations, donors partner with developing countries and their institutions and local communities in the hope that they gain through fuller participation in planning and implementation. Now, according to my colleague and friend at the Centre for Aboriginal, Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the Australian National University, Janet Hunt, <coughs> The, various, the, ver the, the very latest thinking in international development suggests that a shift from partnership to ownership is essential. In other words, donors must behave in ways that respect local circumstances and provide local communities with tools to determine their own destiny. So that's the approach we take internationally. Let's come back home to a particular part of home, to a particular program back at home, the Northern Territory National Emergency. Now, the Australian Government's approach to dealing with Indigenous communities within Australia, especially in the Northern Territory, stands in complete contrast to its commitment to implementing uh, the Paris Declaration in the international development context. So and after three decades of largely bipartisan support for uh, what some governments called self-determination in Indigenous affairs in Australia, the last 10 years or so have seen a process of attrition, combativeness, and outright hostility. During its last term in office, the Howard government was emboldened to implement its true intentions in Indigenous affairs, having secured a majority in both houses of the federal parliament. The Howard government began its final term by dismantling the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. And just months before it was voted out of office, made its most controversial act in Indigenous affairs with the declaration of the Northern Territory National Emergency. Now, under the Northern Territory 
emergency response legislation, the protections afforded under the, under the Racial Discrimination Act and the Northern Territory Anti-Discrimination Laws, protections that were afforded to Aboriginal people who were captured by this new federal law uh, were removed. Those protections were removed. And the Howard government asserted that the steps taken under the new laws were to be characterised as special measures. Now, any undergraduate international law student can tell you that if it's a special measure, you don't need to suspend the protection. Some of the things they did, for example, the permit system that provided traditional owners uh, with the authority to control who entered their lands uh, was abolished. And the compulsory acquisition of all prescribed communities for five years was um, introduced. You know, a lot of people don't understand that Aboriginal land in the Northern Territory is ordinary freehold. These traditional owners are freeholders, like any other freeholder in Australia. They are now the only freeholders in Australia who don't have access, uh, don't have a right to control access to their freehold land. I live in Canberra. I'm a leaseholder, <laughs> but I ought to be worried if I was a freeholder. <clears throat> now. These and other related measures had, had uh, nothing to do with um, the child sexual abuse report by Anderson and Weil, the Little Ch uh, Children Are Sacred report. What these land measures has to do, that still escapes me. It's absolutely beyond me. Perhaps I'm just really thick. Another example is the imposition of compulsory uh, income management. Now, there's been a lot of mixed responses to this particular uh, measure from various people in the community. Some support, some don't. Now, I'm, I'm not particularly concerned about that. What, what concerns me about this is that it was done without any consultation or engagement uh, with the people concerned, and when you talk about themes like communities in control, um, that's a blatant example of where it's a nonsense to use the word control in any context. Now, none of us, not here or anywhere else, are in any doubt that we need to intervene to make kids safe. In fact, we have a responsibility to do so and so does government. And we must put responses in place that are effective, but responses should never ever involve racial discrimination. At the time the emergency response was announced, I expressed my concern about the recklessness with which politicians are now prepared to break the sacred principle 
uh, that one does not, by law, discriminate against people on the basis of their race. You know, the international prohibition on racial discrimination is an absolute prohibition. That means it can't even be breached. The obligation can't be breached even in time of war. That's what absolute prohibition means. And the problem I have is, this, is that um, just about every page of the 500 pages of the legislation authorising the intervention breaks our obligations under just about every international human rights treaty, uh, human rights treaty that Australia has signed up to. And most fundament fundamentally being the breach of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. And it's not excusable in any situation when we know what needs to be done to make children safe. We know what needs to be done, and it doesn't involve racial discrimination. Now, folks, juxtapose the Howard government's treatment of Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory with its approach to international development aid in the Pacific and Asia region. It is completely the opposite. What's happened in the Northern Territory is a totally heavy-handed and a bully boy approach. And it flies in the face of the accepted principles for respectful engagement. There was no respect for rights. The communities had no say. Their dignity and control was swept away by the stroke of a pen. And there's no way any Australian government could apply its interventionist approach in the Northern Territory in any of the countries in the Pacific, East Timor or Asia because it'd be seen as an invasion, an act of aggression. Now, I welcome the Rudd government's commitment to bringing the existing Northern Territory emergency response legislation within the scope of the Racial Discrimination Act. But I have very serious questions about how the government can continue to impose compulsory income management on a section of the community based on race. <coughs> I now want to turn to another example that I mentioned at the outset, again in the Northern Territory, and it relates to local government reforms. And again, it, it's about government heavy-handedness when it comes to dealing with Indigenous communities. And this is another case <coughs> where a local community has had their control stripped away uh, by government decree. And I want to acknowledge my friend and colleague, Diane Smith, uh, 
also from, like Janet Hunt, from the Centre for Aboriginal and Economic Policy Research at the ANU, for allowing me to draw on the results of her research and experiences in working with the Bininj communities in Western Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. Now, in late 2002, the Northern Territory Government commenced discussions uh, with Indigenous leaders from West Arnhem Land about establishing a regional local government. Uh, the Northern Territory Government was eager to find ways of supporting local governance structures that had legitimacy within the communities uh, that were being governed. The aim of the NT Government's policy agenda was to amalgamate the existing 65 local governing bodies uh, spread across the Territory into around 20 larger and more sustainable councils. Victorians, no doubt, here are familiar with that story. Now, a key goal of the reform agenda was to create Indigenous government, uh, governments with legitimate authority. The, <clears throat> the policy intention was that uh, regional authorities would firstly have jurisdiction as regionalised forms of local government under the Northern Territory Local Government Act of 1978. Secondly, that these regional authorities would be established by voluntary agreement between the existing community government councils and uh, would require, uh, in order to amalgamate, would require a substantial majority of residents in favour. Thirdly, these uh, regional authorities would be able to undertake regional decision making to determine priorities, establish services and allocate resources. And finally, they would provide for decision-making structures that meet the needs of the community being governed and, where applicable, incorporate strong relationships with cultural decision-making arrangements and particularly uh, the traditional owners. And the emphasis was on flexibility of structures and timeframes and the development of culturally-based representative and electoral arrangements. And it seemed that at long last we had a government that was willing to work with local Aboriginal communities to work out their regional governance arrangements for the provision of basic services. And the effort worked, for a while anyway. It took a long time. A great deal of negotiation and effort was invested by the people of West Arnhem Land and dedicated Northern Territory Government personnel uh, on the ground. The result was that was an organisation that local communities within the West Arnhem Land region trusted, viewed as their own and supported. An interim regional council was formed in anticipation of taking the reins uh, when the Northern Territory Government uh, could, could formalise the agreed arrangements. <coughs> and the people of West Arnhem Land had also worked out many of the often troublesome matters of who can speak for whom and for where and how to make collective decisions across social uh, divides and how to organise on a large scale uh, where there was no previous history among uh, their people for such large scale 
uh, organisation and decision making. However, their efforts at creating a culturally appropriate regional governance arrangement came to an, up, an abrupt end in early 2007 when the Northern Territory Government announced a new local government policy uh, which resulted in a number of changes. First, the Interim Council for West Arnhem for the West Arnhem region was told it would now be required to include two other communities that previously uh, were not included, uh, involving an even more complex set of organisational and governance arrangements. Second, the interim council members, not unreasonably, were angered that their collective decision-making role had been pulled from under them. And third, the interim council was no longer regarded by the Northern Territory government as being representative because the area of jurisdiction had been enlarged to take in other communities. And finally, the culturally based institutions that the Interim Council had designed, such as their constitution and preamble, had been uh, unceremoniously dumped. In short, the Northern Territory Government had betrayed the trust of the local Indigenous community. And not long after that, the federal government followed with its so-called emergency response. Now, folks, what are the messages here? What are the messages we're to take away from these Australian examples? From the government. What do we say uh, to those who are committed to putting communities in control? What do we say about this? Now governments <coughs> and um, commentators talk a lot, of, uh, a lot about the need for Aboriginal communities to take control and responsibility and deal with what they call our dysfunction. And it indeed was part of the federal government's justification for imposing the emergency response um, in the Northern Territory. Now, understandably, I think it's a little hard to take when an Aboriginal community invests a lot of time and effort in putting a regional governing body together that has legitimacy from its constituents and respects the inherent Indigenous culture of the community. It's a little hard to take when the government keeps telling you, deal with your dysfunction. And then when you've completed all the hard work, 
government decides to step in and take over. Not once, but twice. And in this case, the West Arnhem case, first the Northern Territory Government and then the Federal Government. Now, as my colleague Stephen Cornell from the Harvard Project puts it, this looks very much like the dysfunctionality of government. <laughs> Continually changing the rules of the game, unable to recognise or take advantage of solutions generated by Indigenous peoples and communities, and uncertain of how to cope with diversity in those solutions. And I would add to Stephen's list and say, um, afraid of giving Indigenous communities power and control. But I don't want to finish on a, in a negative fashion. I want to leave you with some positive attributes about Indigenous communities. Now, you know, contrary to some beliefs, Indigenous people uh, and our communities, we don't exist uh, frozen in time as outdated cultural museums. As the former Minister for Indigenous Affairs, um, Amanda Vanstone, sought to have us believe. I wonder where Amanda is these days. In Rome. <laughs> now, we have a long history of highly sophisticated innovation in our governing institutions. And Indigenous leaders are quite adept at connecting with non-Indigenous policy and ways of doing business. Diane Smith has observed that for Indigenous governance to be effective and sustainable, a number of conditions must be met. And these build on the Indigenous design principles I mentioned earlier. First and foremost, the new governance institutions must be, must be, underline, government take note, must be initiated by Indigenous peoples themselves on the basis of our free, prior and informed consent. Second, the role of trusted and respected leaders is crucial to institution building. Third, governance must be undertaken in ways that resonate with community members' views of what is considered to be culturally legitimate and workable. Fourth, external coercion and imposition of governance arrangements have little traction in changing behaviour or building commitment and responsibility. And finally, the community development work of trusted government community development officers can make a major contribution to enabling governance. 
You know, I often think I know how I know how the blackfellas fend about at, at West Arnhem. You know how how not just the winds out wind out of your sail, but the you know the destruction of your hope and your sense of freedom and your and your your sense of ownership of something you'd built. But I've often wondered wonder how those government guys who work so hard with them, you know. They must have been feeling just as empty about what the government did. Now, Tom Calmer, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, and he's also the Race Discrimination Commissioner, is right when he says that Indigenous cultures vary significantly across Australia. And as a result, uh, there are and must be a diversity of frameworks. It stands to reason. It's not rocket science. And I agree with Tom when he says that communities need the scope to design structures and methods of governance to suit their needs and the size of their clan or community rather than um, these being externally imposed in a one-size-fits-all approach. And folks, I think the lesson we can draw from the above experiences is that governments are very, very, very reluctant uh, to lose control. They want to retain decision-making power and control, and in doing so, um, they fail, absolutely fail, to recognise the value and benefits of Indigenous uh, community decision-making. And what concerns me most is that governments are continuing to use coercion by publicly imposing non-negotiable conditions upon which they are prepared to service Aboriginal communities. And when these conditions are not met, they use the media to put pressure on Aboriginal communities and organisations. Witness the Alice Springs tan camps. Now this kind of behaviour by government is destructive, disempowering and overtly political. And governments may claim the means justifies the ends, but in reality uh, the means never gets to the ends. This kind of behaviour is not only morally wrong, um, but it's technically wrong. It's technically wrong, uh, technically wrong because the empowerment of Indigenous peoples and communities and our unique cultures and our indigeneity are vital components of progress towards our improved well-being. Again, as Professor Cornell has found in his research with Native American uh, nations, Aboriginal communities in Australia may be willing uh, to forgo, indeed we would be willing to forgo certain benefits so as to maintain our identity and cultural practices. Because for us, the vitality of the community and the, con the continuity 
of a distinctive place, peoplehood and culture simply matter more than individual prosperity. Indigenous peoples and communities are quite capable and able to resolve complex governance problems with innovative strategies and our solutions can facilitate a government policy implementation. And again, I agree with Professor Cornell when he says that we risk losing, what we risk losing is the aspirations of communities, of peoples, of indigenous nations. If we are serious about changing socio-economic conditions in Aboriginal communities, wherever they may be, then we have to be serious about engaging uh, with them. Not as recipients, but as genu genuine partners. And that means taking our aspirations into account and respecting our culture. Thank you for your attention. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.